podcast one production. commentator and journalist Greg Rust and this is Rusty's Garage. In this episode I'm catching up with Craig Lowndes. On his back deck he and wife Lara are at home enjoying a rare break in an exhausting schedule. Lowndes, the modern day Peter Brock, has decided to step back from full-time driving after more than 20 years at the pinnacle of the sport. But the people's champion and proud dad has plenty to keep him busy and won't be venturing too far from a life that has always involved some sort of wheels. I think the early days, the early, early days um, growing up, I actually preferred two wheels. I actually, I love motorbikes, I still do. And I remember going to dad's workshop uh, he had a service station first and then he actually then had a mechanical shop, which is what I did my apprenticeship through. But I remember going there and, and just being part of, I suppose, the, the grease and the dirt and the grime and, and pulling things apart, loving that, that atmosphere. And then uh, Dad had a, a chassis dyno. So then he had people come in and, and did like performance side of cars, um, you know, the Honda uh, race team, the, the Australian Honda team used to bring, which actually was headed up, or not headed up, but, but run by Campbell Little, who obviously I crossed paths with later in life. And um, Campbell used to bring the, the bikes in, and we used to dyno them on the on the on the chassis dyno. So a lot of the the, the racing connection come through Dad, and uh, you know, as I said, growing up was always an interest for me. And and as I got older, you know, then went from two wheels to four wheels with go karts. Um, and then I think that just the passion, it was just a, a hobby at the time, but then it became a passion. In the ridiculously OHS world that we now live, I think it's actually a little bit sad sometimes that kids aren't always allowed to back the car down the driveway or if you've got a bit of space to go for a paddock bash. Did you do that sort of stuff when you were younger and what were the cars? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that um, I grew up on, on five acres, um, just a little bit north of uh, Melbourne. So yeah, the actual place was um, was plenty and... Um, I got an older brother. We we had motorbikes. We used to run around. I used to make jumps and do stupid things. What were the bikes back then? Uh, actually, I had a Yamaha eighty uh, J. So I think it was an 84, 83, 84 model. Yep. And two stroke. Uh, two stroke, yes. And um, and and I used to race. That was my race bike. And um, for me. I used to love that side of it. We had an old grey Massey Ferguson, which tractor. We used to have a, a carryall at the back, and I used to go down and get firewood. And I, and I do remember, because we were on a bit of a hill, that um, you'd load up the carryall with firewood, and I'd, I'd used to raise it by about a foot, and as we're driving back up the hill, the front wheels would come off, and, you, and, you, and you just, you'd have a bit of fun just doing stupid things. And, um, and I remember that the, 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 the tractor had independent rear brakes, so you'd, you'd why the front wheels are off the ground. You used to be able to steer it by the rear wheels. And, um, and I just had fun with all that side of it. So, yeah, and then I had, um, oh, my brother bought an a Angular, Ford Angular, um, which he backed it into the mailbox. He was never a good driver. Um, and then I had an old Datsun. It was what was a, it? What sort of Datsun? I'm just trying to think. It was a 68 Datsun. Crikey, like an old Bluebird or something. Yeah, it was, oh, it was before then. Yeah. It was old. And I, yeah, I, got, I had it. I think I didn't hit anything with it. Thankfully, I got it bogged a number of times, and I had to get it towed out. And column uh, shift? What was it? Uh, it was a column shift. Yes. 
and it was white, and uh, and it didn't last very long. And then uh, then it had the, the motorbikes. We actually had a, um, a Honda Odyssey, um, an '84 Honda Odyssey, which didn't have it. It was a solid rear end, had independent front, solid rear end, and I would be constantly pulling the rear axle out, re bending it straight because I tried to jump it and it, and it wouldn't take it. So I was always doing something stupid. <laughs> What were the cars that Dad had in the garage back then? What, what were the was it Holdens? Was it Fords? In this, what was then a deeply divided, you know, touring car world? It was actually a bit of a mix. I think we grew up more of a Ford family. We, Mum had a Nissan Pintara, which we um, again, Dad in the performance we used to do a lot of turbo stuff, so we put a turbo on that. That was a four cylinder Nissan Pintara. Dad had a, a Nissan Navara, which again we turboed that. It was a, a dirty diesel. Uh, then we had a actual Ford panel van for a little while. We turboed that. That was a six-cylinder. We've had a family car or a car in the family for a number of years, for a long time, and uh, now got, finally got it in the shed here at home. It's, um, it's an old 38 DeSoto. Um, so that, that was sort of um, – that, that's been in the family. It's been – it was my father's grandfather's first car. So um, it was something that's uh, it's been in the family for a long time. We've got it in the shed now. Um, typical, I'm now repairing it. Um, I've just had to get the radiator repaired. Uh, but it's registered, still drives, and uh, it's something that we're sort of working progress. That's cool. So does Craig Lowndes get on eBay and international websites and whatever else to try and find parts for this thing? What do you do? Oh, absolutely. I actually, I, I've, um, and I suppose it's, it's, it's like anything, as you get older, you sort of get a bit wiser. And I'm actually now trying to, to pick Dad's brain about the history of everything, of of. Obviously, you know, Dad's background was, was, you know, with the Holden dealer team and doing his apprenticeship under Harry Firth and, and all that side of it. But with it, Asotto is understanding, is it the original uh, Juco? Is it the interior standard? And from from what I've gathered, <laughs> and again, time flies, Dad said, yeah, it got repainted not long ago. 73. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, the, the outside actually hasn't got a lot of rust in it, which is good. Um, but, yeah, the, it's not hasn't got the original paint on top, which is good because it means I can actually now go and do that. Uh, the interior is original. Uh, the engine's been rebuilt, but it's still original. Um, it's got a three-speed gearbox. Um, it's got a bus steering wheel. Dad had to put indicators on it, for obviously, for road... Uh, regulations, but other than that, it is absolutely as it was. What colour? Um, it's a mustard yellow. Okay. Um, it's got red interior, leather interior. Um, it's got the the rear doors are silver side, so they actually open up backwards. backwards. Yeah. Um, it's got a bench seat at the front, bench seat at the back, so it carries about fifteen people. And um, it, it's it really is one of those things that uh, for for us, it's just one of those great. Uh, things that we'll keep in the family now forever. That little tip-tap, pitter-patter of feet <laughs> you might have heard then is your beautiful dog going for a run to chase the balls. Lola, isn't it? Yeah, Lola. She's a she's um, a, a, a pug cross Jack Russell. So she's a, uh, yeah, she's a bit of a maniac. She's full of energy. Um, the pug side of it is, is that she's very cuddly. The Jack Russell side of it, she's very adventurous. So uh, luckily where we are, we've got some land and um, she ventures up the back and with her nose, sniffs out everything. She's a showstopper. She'll steal this interview, which is which is quite cool. I can remember, mate, a, a freckly-faced, ginger-haired Jack Perkins in the paddock following his dad, Larry. He'd come into the commentary box, G'day, mate, you know, <laughs> and he'd set me straight quite rightly on, on some racing stuff. You're a little bit older, but like him, was, was pit lane, was the paddock in motorsport, did that kind of become a home away from home at times for you? Uh, it did. I think Sandown was probably more the, the, the frequent... Uh, pits and I do remember running around the back of the pits at Sandown. I think I was about 
10, 12. Um, uh, yeah, probably the same, annoying the crap out of everyone, um, <laughs> saying hello to everyone, having a pass to be able to get most places. And, uh, you know, Dad was a, um, a chief scrutineer at um, sort of those times as well. So, yeah, fortunate enough to be able to see the good old days of, of what the cars were, what the, what the category was. Um, you know, the, the interaction of Brock was very early in, in my days. And, uh, How did you, you know, first meet him? He became a great mentor for you, obviously, which we'll get to in this chat. But what was the first meeting with him? Uh, it was, at the, I, I'd say it was probably around that time, about 12. Uh, Dad introduced me to him. I actually, I don't know if I still got it. I might still have it somewhere in, a, in an archive box somewhere, a, a, uh, a poster with him signing it to Craig, best wishes, uh, Peter Brock. And, um, and and I've kept it forever. As I said, it'll be in an archive box somewhere. But, um, yeah, it was, that was the early days. And because of Dad's connection through that, that he obviously knew, knew Peter. Um, and, and Peter was, you know, as what he was. You know, he was very giving, um, very friendly. Um, and, of course, you know, from that point, then I become more annoying and, um, and, and, and hanging around and watching. Were there cars back then that really caught your eye on the track? Was there a car that, like, wow, that is cool? Oh, I think the uh, the the early early days, the, the early Commodores, the the big bangers. Like w- when you used to hear them run down the, the main straight of Sandown, uh, the noise and the rumble. And I think that you know, I do remember the probably the latter days. I think it was '96 or so when at, even at Oran Park they got all the old cars back and they did a demonstration. And, you know, I, the only time I've ever seen the whole of pit lane put their tools down and run to pit wall and hear these cars run around again. And I think that the that, for me, the memories of all those big bangers running around and, and, and of course, growing up in that era, um, for me, was 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 unbelievable. And then, of course, getting the opportunity to drive the 72 Tirana um, around on the, on the Brock Parade uh, in 06 was, for me, a bit of history just to see what they dealt with and what they had to deal with Mm. in the sense of what we we do today. We'll come to that story soon. Mm. Obviously, with the crazy stuff around the property, your dad must have got to a point where we went, right, let's go motor racing. Um, What Four-wheel, four-wheel. Yeah. What, what was it? Obviously, karting first time. Where was it and what kind of kart, that sort of thing? Uh, it was a, it was an arrow kart, um, Drew Price, and uh, it, it was something that um, Dad bought it. Yeah, I was... Uh, I was a rookie, like I was like junior. Um, I just, you know, we were racing motocross at young age, but, you know, sort of around the, uh, the 10, 9, 10 mark that we got a go-kart. Um, I remember going, it was Whittlesey, where um, the Eastern Lions go-kart club, which is still running, but now it's up at Puckapunyal. Yeah, um, yeah. Puck, yeah um, but it was at Whittlesey at the time. It was a little kidney-shaped track. It was really, really like a 12-second, if that sort of lap time, it was really quick. Um <laughs> But I do remember that um, we went there for the first time. I was on my P's. Actually, I was on my learners. And um, they allowed me to, normally at the time, and now, that you obviously, as you're going through your grading, you have to start at the back of the field the whole time. But back then, I don't know for what reason they decided, they allowed me to to rotate through the field. And I actually won one of the races. So um, I think from that point on, uh, it became more of a passion. I, I remember going to, to, to the track. It was my club track. Um, you know, it, sometimes it'd be raining, sometimes it wouldn't. Um, back then, we weren't allowed to have wet weather tires, so Dad would just push me out, say good luck, and basically. And uh, but he'd also go out. Um, although he's not a, a race driver as such, but he's more of the mechanical background. He'd all, he'd stand on the track and and make me ro- drive around him to try and learn the apexes and the lines and everything else. So for me, Dad was very influential about 
the craft and, and understanding what and how to look at corners and, and how to flow things, uh, you know, and in those early days running around without wet weather tyres, you learn how to find the grip on the track, you know, you know, running around the outside of corners like we all do now. And so a lot of the, lot of the background for me of, of what I know and my ability, it all comes from those early days. You originally wanted to buy, if memory serves, a Ford Escort RS2000 as your, as your first car. Cool car, right? I still love those. But your dad kind of encouraged you, swayed you towards a Cortina, a little bit of an older car, 90, uh, 1966 model Mark One. Uh, where did you find that? What state was it in? And you've kept it, haven't you? Uh, yes, I did. Uh, still in the garage at home. And uh, that story is that, yeah, I, I for some reason, I grew up loving the RS2000 car. I think it was more just the, more a little bit of the rally side of it as well and just the, the, the robust of, of what the RS was. And uh, I wanted to buy one. Typical dad, I remember sitting in the lounge room going through the trading post, which was paper back then. Now it's all electronic. <laughs> flicking through the paper and trying to, and I'm circling all these cars and I'm like, dad, dad, you know, this has got this and this has got that. He's like, how much? And I tell him, like, no. Nah. I was like, oh, damn. How much back then? What are we, what are we talking? Oh, I think they were about $1,200. Yeah. Like it was, which was a lot of money. Which was a lot of money back then. And Dad's like, nah. And I'm like, oh, God, here we go. So I'm flicking through the paper trying to find it. Anyway, got to the – he sort of persuaded me to look at Cortinas. And Dad was part of the the, the actual the, the 500, the Cortina 500 that we're racing. And uh, so anyway, so I started looking at them. I wasn't a really big fan of them, but um, Mongbok, which is out east of Melbourne – I found this red one. It was a 440. It was a four-door. Um, it was registered at the time from memory. It was straight. It was a bit dirty in the sense that the colour was faded, uh, but it was all sort of, in a sense, mechanically a solid car. Yep. So I bought that. I bought another green one because I was doing my apprenticeship at the time. So I'd left school and, and you know, trying to earn money and everything else. So I'd, I'd bought the red one, bought a green one, I think you owned three all up, didn't you? And then I bought, and then I bought an original GT, which is oh. what, what what got me fascinated. I think that um, I bought original GT, and I bought it uh, south of Melbourne, but it had been hit. It was parked on the side of the road, and someone ran out the back of it, so it, all the back of it had all been stoved in. But it had all the GT parts. Nice. Then I looked at it, what I was going to do, and I was actually going thinking about because uh, where Dad's workshop was, the next door was the panel shop, and I was talking to them about whether we could re structure this GT car yeah. and then we had a good look at it the front strut tower had been seamed welded so we had a crash in the front and hit at the back and they sort of looked you know, said it's not worth it so then in the end I, I took the red one off off basically the road stripped it completely had it in dad's workshop so after it every, after at night I'd go around and um, and I'd pull the engine out wash down the engine bay sort of got that painted we looked at everything else and then we left the red colour on it for that time being still had the original four cylinder in it um, but I put the GT running gear in it so the gearbox uh, the um, the little short housing that comes up through the nose and and sort of up through the centre of the car and the little short shift gear gear change had all that centre console uh, put the GT dash in it which was was the centre gauges um, sort of turned it into a a lookalike and I actually remember driving it to Queensland, driving it back from Queensland, and I just got past Albury from memory, and it and it broke a valve spring, um, an exhaust one from memory. So anyway, uh, I kept driving it. I drove it home, got it, finally got it home. Good old thing it was. And then I obviously looked at the engine, and the engine was pretty damaged. So at that time, we had a car in at work that a, that a lady didn't want anymore and it was an Escort and it had the Pinto engine and I'm like how good's this so I literally bought that 
I then took the engine back out of the Cortina, uh, then transplanted the the Escort Pinto two-litre engine into the engine bay, which then I had to cut and shut the, the cross member to suit the, the engine mount. So I also had to then cut the tunnel to, to open up the tunnel to, to, to accommodate the Escort gearbox. I think from memory it makes about 140, 150 horsepower at the rear wheels. Um, it revs to about 7, 8 so it revs out well. Um, it's a very unassuming engine, and of course, um, you know, I used to have fun. Be- fun because of being back then on, on my sort of on my P's, power to weight ratio, which was something that most people didn't think about. So my friends had SLE Commodores with the two five three V eight, thinking that the V eight's going to blow everything off. And of course, uh, my little um, sorry Cortina with the Escort engine, it um, used to blow them away. Greg Murphy, who you won Bathurst with in '96, uh, had a. a- a uh, Datsun 1200 is his first car, and he's now got he's now got a, a 1200 Triple S, which he let me drive recently. So it's got I think a 1500 motor in it with twin side draft autos, and mate, I, it's a little car. So I look like a gorilla in a sardine can <laughs> trying, trying to drive it. But you forget, don't you, how far cars have come? So heavy steering, the brakes aren't anything like today. What's the Cortina like to drive? Um, well- to be honest, Lara drives it more than I do, and and what are we talking? Sunday coffee runs with the pair of you. Well, no, she actually drives it down the shopping centre and wow. and and gets it out, and we. Um, but you're right, like you actually sit in it, and you forget how short and closed up you are inside. It's got no power steering, no brake assists, so you've got to hit the brake pedal hard um, to get it to stop. It has got side draft Webers. It actually put, and now thinking back on it, I think Dad sold me a bit of a furphy. So I put 48, 48 side draft Webers on it and it used to have this real flat spot down low. So you used to have to rev it to get it going. And he's like, oh, that's just standard. That's it. Don't worry about that. So for all my years, I've had this flat spot in this car. And, then, and what it actually did is the car spent 10, 11 years at the Ford Museum down in Geelong. Yeah. The museum shut down. So I get this phone call about three years ago saying, look, we need to get you to come and pick up your car. I'm like, oh, geez, that's right. I still got that, haven't I? <laughs> Completely forgot about it. So got it back. Dad uh, got it roadworthy to Melbourne. We got it shipped up to Queensland. Uh, and then I was going to get it registered and I was going to put it on the club, re- club reg. And then obviously there's some certain regulations that you obviously need to you know, drive them a certain amount of times, everything else. And I thought, no, bugger this. I want to drive it when I can and when I want. So we got, got it. We went to go get it registered. And the problem was we had to find evidence of my ownership of it. Wow. And I'm like, hmm. How am I going to find that out? Yeah, it's like, put that. <laughs> well, I opened up the glove box. No way. There was a there was an old registration sticker and paperwork in my name back in 1996. I love it. So it had been sitting in the glove box all these years, which I had never. I for some reason I don't know why I left it in it. Um, and then, of course, I took it down to the uh, road traffic branch up here in Queensland. There was a nut, they obviously knew who I was. They, they you know, believe me enough, and I got the car registered. So, um, so we have been driving it. I've um, finally had it on a dyno again up here. And the guy that uh, the dynoed it for me, which does a lot of performance stuff, was basically laughing, going, why did you put 48 side draft Webers on this thing? And I said, well, I got led to believe that that's what I needed for, obviously, the camshaft, the valves, everything needed a bit of breathing space. And he goes, well, the, the, the chokes that you have inside it were too big, hence why you've got a flat spot. So anyway, long story short is that uh, he got some uh, new chokes made up because I had to get them made. Um, because I had to be downsized so much, 
and uh, it, it's it's now got rid of the flat spot. It's now a nicer car to drive. It's still got the horsepower, um, but you, it, it's completely transformed the car. So all these years, my dad dudded me, and <laughs> I thought it was just normal that the car drove like a pig, but it's actually not. It's a nice car to drive. I love it. There is something cool about driving a, a car like that. Formula Ford, as we kind of venture back to racing here, proven pathway for so many supercars, Formula One, you name it when you look at the bios. Single-seater, no wings. Back then, a 1,600cc Kent engine, I think, wasn't it? Um, You made the step from karts. Did that come easily? What were the early learnings of Formula 4? Dad was always very much a belief of... of of, for me to do all my preparation and my work, and that was through the go-karts. We got to a stage where... We could have stayed in go-karts and gone, okay, this is it, this is my life. Um, I played football, AFL, played cricket in summer. So I was an active kid, but driving was a passion. Obviously, Dad, you know, through his line of work was obviously a passion. So we got to a point where we said, all right, we can sell everything up as a go-kart side of it, see what we've got, and then we'll look at what we can buy. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, fine. So we actually sold all the go-karts, the trailer. We had At that stage, we had two, two frames, which were both arrows. I think we had about four engines, uh, the go-kart trailer, sold everything up, all the spares. And then we basically had didn't have a lot of money. I think Dad, had, Dad borrowed some money. Uh, we bought this 85 Van Diemen uh, that was a little bit sort of how to do in the sense it needed a bit of repair work, it needed a bit of tidying up. Uh, we, had, uh, a, we had a time at that time to be able to do that. I can't remember exactly the cost. I think it was about $15,000. And that Man. was the car, the trailer and the spare wheels. And that was really literally it. So we got the car. Again, after work, because I was doing my apprenticeship with Dad at the time, uh, we'd pull the thing apart, we'd have a good look at it. And Dad was very methodical about, you know, learning how to pull things apart and understanding them, looking at them, measuring them, taking photos of them, whatever you had to do to make sure that we could put back together. So that was a huge learning curve for me. You go from go-karts, which, you know, a little engine on the side of the cart, no gears, no nothing, to a gearbox, um, suspension, uh, clutches, clutches yeah. everything and anything. So for me, it was a huge learning curve, but I did all the work. Um, and, you know, we had a gentleman, Ray Robbins, who was very much a, a big part of supercars. He was doing panel work next door. So he actually did all the body work for me and helped me do all the body work side of it. So Ray did all that. Um, I did all the mechanical sides. I remember we raced it at Winton for the first time. Winton was my first club track. And I got pulled up for an illegal... Um, intake manifolds. What we didn't know at the time is is when we bought it, the manifold, and what the trick was back then was to run a double gasket under the carburetor to give it more torque. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, that became illegal to run a, a run double gaskets and then they, they, they made them run back to single, which is what they come with. But then when you've got to appreciate, when an eng- a road engine sits in a road car, it sits on an angle, so they, mat- they machine the manifold for the carburetor to sit mm-hmm. flat. But then when you put it, the engine flat, the carby leans forward. So what they did with, um, instead of um, machining the high spot down to run the carby flat, this manifold actually built up the low spot, which okay. was hence the same as what you'd run two gaskets. Okay. So it had more. Anyway, so long story short, we got pulled up, tapped on the shoulder, and I got excluded from the first race of I ever did, um, which, again, I was going through my P's um, because of this illegal manifold, which I had no idea. So we had a steep learning curve. Obviously fixed that. We built the first engine rebuild in the, on the on the on the engine. Um, did that at the workshop. Uh, Dad's again. Dad's motto was it, it was a three year program. The first year we would do 
collaborating. Second year, we'd, we'd use the same car, but as a national program. And then hopefully the third year, get enough interest sponsorship to, to obviously, you know, do the third year. Um, we started off the first year doing club racing at Winton. Uh, we managed to win that uh, as, as, a, as a club. We then put uh, the second year into program. We got a little bit of sponsorship to be able to do that. So Dad said, look, we'll run the same car, the 85, and that was back in... So the first year we did it in 91. Second year was 92. Uh, we'll do the national races and see where we end up. So the first year uh, we did all the club races. We also raced at Phillip Island and... and uh, Sandown just to get a familiarisation and, and, and a feel. Second year, we did all the national... We started with the national rounds. Uh, we got halfway through the year and a gentleman by the name of David Ratcliffe who has a trucking spares in Sydney, um, who, who, I, who I was racing against, uh, tapped us on the shoulder and said, look, I've got this 89 um, Reynard, another another form of Ford, uh, said, I've got two daughters, a family that not really interested in motor racing anymore. I want to spend more time with them. I need to sell the car, but I need the car to perform. So I would like you to run the car, race the car, um, you maintain it and, uh, you know, see where we end up. So at the end of that year, which was in the end of 92, we ended up 16th in the national series. At the end of the year, David got to sell the car because of the performance that we'd done in it. And then at the end of, the, end of that 92, he turned around and said, look, all right, for what you've done, I'm going to buy you a 93 current Van Diemen car and you guys, again, I'll supply the car, you maintain it, run it you know, with costs. And uh, history shows that we, we ended up winning that year in 93. And if it wasn't for David Ratcliffe to be able to do what he did, I wouldn't probably be here. You've kept one, did you? Or you track, was it the first, very first one you raced and you've restored that too? Is that right? So, yeah, so when we when we sold our 85, we actually sold it to Jim Murcott, who at the time was running the, the driver training school in, uh, in Sandown. I actually was an instructor out there for, for a number of years. Jim was always very good at and helping young junior drivers develop and giving them a job as an instructor. So I actually instructed out there with Karen McConville and a few others out there at the time, early days. So he ended up buying the, the 85 office to do it as a, use it as a club or a school car. Um, so we knew where the car was all the time. Unfortunately, Jim's passed on, and and then all the cars, the, the business, you know, sort of sold all the cars up. So at the time, Dad had an opportunity to buy the car back. So and we did, and it, and then it sat. The car actually sat in Melbourne in a shed. Actually, Laurie Nelson, who used to be a, an old Group A racer, used to race a Mustang, sat in his garage or his shed up at home for about two years, to basically to a point where Dad said. Pull your finger out. What are we doing with this car? <laughs> so then over one one Christmas, uh, I, the kids and I actually went down to Melbourne, spent two weeks in Melbourne. We pulled the car completely apart. Uh, it was yellow. Uh, they repainted it yellow because we had it at white and blue yep. and uh, completely uh, restored it. So it's sitting in the shed now, 99% done. It actually just needs a setup done in it. But um, all have, you, the, have you driven it? I've started it. I haven't driven it. Lara's sat in it and... and We've, we know we can get gears. The gearbox works, um, and we've literally driven it into the shed, and it stayed there. So um, I've got to get Dad down and, and actually take it into the workshop, Triple Eight, and and do the proper setup now of it. But it, it's mechanically all, all good, um, and it took us about a year to, to restore it. Actually, the interesting thing is Ray Robbins later, like now later down the track. This is I'm talking about fifteen sort of more years. He still had the same paint. No way. And the colours of what it, when he painted originally. So, uh, again, we gave Ray the bodywork. He cleaned it up, patched it up, and it's painted back in the white and blue as, as what and the same paint as I had it back in 
91 or end of 90, 91, 92. Um, I've got to get the stickers made up um, and literally just finish off a few things, but it's it's ready to go. So you mentioned Formula Brabham or what became known as Formula Holden. This is going to be a really crude description for listeners, but it, it's kind of for non-motorsport followers. It's, it's like a scaled-down looking Formula One car, wings powered by a, a Holden engine back then. Tell us about the one you campaigned. I think it was a cheetah chassis, wasn't it? Is that what it was? Yeah, it was a Brian Sampson, um, actually Australian-built aluminium monocoque. Um, I think from memory it was an 80s built um, and we called it the Black Death. Um, what? Well, it was black um, we, and it was one of those cars that it looked like a. He was when Brian was building it or designed it. It looked like he was building a canoe, and <laughs> went wrong. Flipped it upside down, cut a hole in the bottom of it, put some four four wheels on it and wings, and went racing. It was really a very <laughs> square looking agricultural style style of car. Every time we went up a category, we tried to do the basics well. So. The, the first thing was to get the thing mechanically right. Uh, I remember at Eastern Creek, the foam in the fuel tank was was that bad. It used to fall apart, fill up the oil fil- uh, the fuel filter all the time, and we finally got the tank out. We cleaned it out, got it all sorted, um, and the car itself was 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 a reasonable car. Like it wasn't a bad car, but we were racing against carbon fiber monocoques, and you know ninety one, ninety two Raynards, and you know, as I said, this this old car was old and every time we used to run it because being an aluminium and all the all the rivets and it was that old that we used to have to corner weight it every time we raced it because the rivets would move and the car would change i remember having a wet race at winton and we were leading the like we're leading the national race and i think we ended up second or third and no one could believe it but because it was so old and so soft like in the sense of the sense of the chassis we had such good traction and we, we blew them away and then we got to a point where we needed to do something. So, '94 was uh, was that year in, in that car, and we we ended up winning the Silver Star or the, the sort of the B class. I think we were sort of the top five or six in the national class. Um, and then we then we needed to do, do something. But the end of '94 was probably my first big chance in the in in touring cars, and that's when um, Jeff Gretsch rang rang up dad and said that uh you know we want to we want to put craig in the car we want to you know we want to basically see what he's got so i remember doing a day out at calder park um during that year and basically i was the gopher you know betting in brakes the gearbox everything that needed to be bedded in and and basically all the the crap jobs um i did and then at the end of the day um they basically said, look, you know, we're going to give you a set of tyres. Um, this is what we want you to do. This is a lap time we hope you can do. And um, basically went out there, and I can't remember, I did it in half a dozen laps, but I got past, I bettered the time that they wanted. And uh, Rick Kemp, uh, Fred or Tony Fredgerson, those guys that were on mechanicing on the car and that sort of came up, and, and I remember... Uh, Rick Kemp saying something to me like, you know, he was really impressed. Um, and I said, oh, thanks. And I, I didn't realise what we'd sort of accomplished at that point. Everyone was just like, oh, yeah, great job. Yeah, they're awesome. And it wasn't until sort of I think a week later that I – and then we got another phone call from Jeff Gretz saying that we want you to be part of the lineup for Sand and Bathurst at the end of 94. And that was like – that was huge. So for me, we through that test drive – 
um, we managed then to be part of the driver lineup for San Ana Bathurst. Which car in the HRT family was it back then that you got to drive? And just share with the listeners a, a bit more about that experience, that first time you were let loose and, and really allowed to explore it. Um, it was the Brock car from memory. Wow. Um, you know, Peter, like we're using Calder Parkers, that that was their test track. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were testing and obviously they were getting ready for the Enduros. Um, and, yeah, I think that... Uh, you know, we did we did the run in Brock's car, and uh, you know we I can't remember we we weren't far off Brock's time from memory, and that's what blew them away. And for me, I I was probably naive. I was naive, um, but I just drove it for what I felt the car was and I was capable of doing. So um, yeah, from that I partnered up with Brad Jones. Um, remember going to Sandown? Uh, I think we set the fastest lap time in 1994 from memory. But I knew Sandown really well because I was a driver instructor out there with the Mer- through the Mercot schooling. So I knew Sandown really well. So I was quite comfortable in the car at Sandown. But it wasn't until I got to Bathurst is when I really struggled. That was, for me, ultimately, that was the, the, the biggest challenge to get my head around. And again, the team were really good. I remember Jeff sitting me down talking to me saying, look, you know, we're not putting any pressure on you. We don't want you to try and overdrive the car or do anything silly. We just want you to, you know, circulate bring the car back and, and see where we end up. And I'm like, I'm like, wow. What people probably don't appreciate or understand is early in that year at Bathurst, there was the, the 12-hour. And I remember I raced the 12-hour hoping that the end of that year that we get a drive at, at Bathurst in anything. Mm-hmm. So I used that 12-hour as, as basically a, a learning tool. And I remember racing a triple S Pulsar, Nissan Pulsar. <laughs> And I, I remember saying at the time it took me two laps to find a radio station because um, it was literally a production car. It had a roll cage, a seat, and that was it. And um, I actually raced with the Morris brothers. And we won our class. Um, and it was quite amazing. It was, um, it, yeah, it was, it was a great experience. But then from driving a, a Nissan Pulsar, which was a two-litre front-wheel drive car, to then a, 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 like a, a supercar or, or, you know, a Group A car or a touring car. Massive horsepower difference. Oh. I mean, everything. You know? <laughs> well, I struggled. And I remember going there and I was miles off the pace. I was like three seconds off the pace or something ridiculous. And I can remember Brad Jones having meetings in the corner basically saying, what in the hell have you done to me? Why have you put this kid in my car? And it wasn't until the point where Brock sat me down and then explained turn one to the last corner where to place the car, how to run the car, what to look for, how to flow the car, get off the brakes here, allow the car to do this. And it was the next session that I went out that I'd, I'd closed the gap by a second and a half. And I was still about a second off the pace, but I was much closer to where I needed to be. And then from that point on, I got faster and faster and I got more familiar with the, with the feel of what I needed to do and drive the car and how to drive the car around a place like Bathurst. So for me, it wasn't until Brock sat me down that I, I, I was out of my depth. I was massively out of my depth. And then, of course, you go fast forward. At the race itself, like, it, it, I wasn't supposed to be in the car at the end of the race. That was not the plan. Like, the whole plan was for Brad to bring it home, start the race, me to do the middle bits, be the, be the sort of the the lunchtime driver, the lunchtime driver, the rookie, and then for for Brad to bring it home. But somewhere along the line, either calculations got out of whack or whatever happened, Brad had done his time. He ran out of time. Literally, couldn't 
continue to do any more laps. So that mean I had to get back in the car at the end of the race. And so I'm at the back, back end of this race. We were second at the time. We had a safety car. And I remember because conversation I had with John Bow later in life, I, it, Bowie radioed to the team, which was Dick Johnson's team, and said, oh, who's, who's behind us and, you know, who's the competition? And, and, the, and I believe from what Bowie had told me that, you know, Tim had come back and said, oh, yeah, Craig Lowndes is, is in, in the uh, 015 car, uh, but he's, you know, he's, he's no threat. The next one beyond that I think was Tony Longhurst and it was Longhurst and I think it was Larry was third and fourth. So they sort of dismissed me. And then at the restart, I, I got up and got a good run on. I come out of turn one, and I remember I had a great run on Bowie. And the strength of the Commodore back then was it had good straight line handling. It had good straight line speed. And I had a slipstream up over the crest of the mountain stripe. I pulled out, got alongside him. And I still reckon that Bowie had broken early because I thought I broke about where I normally did or probably a little bit beyond where I normally did. But the way it looks, and if anyone Googles it, I just had this massive slingshot around the outside of him into turn two. And... Then I led the, led the biggest race of my life for a lap and a half. And so for me, I was just, again, I'd gone from being so slow at the beginning of the Bathurst week to then leading the race. And then it wasn't until we had a back marker at the last corner that, that just in, interrupted my flow because I went down the inside of him. And he, I remember it. He then turned in on me and I had, to, I, I had to check up and then Bowie got a run on me down pit straight, got me into turn one. We went back up Mountain Straight, and I think I was about a second and a half off him. Sort of the team was sort of encouraging me, trying to get my head head right, and I was just at a point where I was just getting sort of more familiar and getting the flow back. And there was about a couple of laps to go, and the fuel light come on on the dash. And I radioed to the team, and they basically said, look, you're going to have to, to stop the pursuit and now just bring it home. Mm-hmm. Save fuel where you can. We had, a, I think at that point, we had a big enough gap on third, which was Longhurst. Um, and so I had to then back off because I was slowly sort of catching Barry again. I don't know whether I would have been able to pass him, but hopefully you'd be able to close the gap back up to him and make it look interesting. But we had to back off, save fuel. We finished second. Um, and that's what started my career. But what I didn't know at the time, and again, talking to Bowie down the track and KGO man he is, um, <laughs> he, uh, he told me that he was about half a lap away himself from having to back off because they were running out of fuel. So he said if, if I'd pursued him for another half a lap, he would have had to back off because he wouldn't have made it home either. So he said I was, he was very thankful that I backed off first, then he can then ease it off and we both finish one too. But, yeah, if, if I had enough fuel, if only, what maybe, what could have been, who knows. It was clearly a turning point, though, for you, mate, because you, you came to grips with Bathurst. It did that happen... Because of the stress, were you relaxed about it? Were you just reveling because of the track and the place? What what transpired? I I think until as I said, to point to where Brock sat me down, and I got comfortable with the track. And I think that if I hadn't had that, I would have struggled. It would have taken me probably a number of times to get used, a number of years to get used to it. Mm. And I don't know whether I had that opportunity. The team were very good in the sense of the, the backing and the support they had, but it wasn't, as I said, it wasn't until Brock sat me down that we actually then got comfortable to be able to keep pushing the limits of the car and, and you know, finding the limits, especially over Skyline and, you know, not breaking over Skyline to allow the car to flow down into the dipper and um, get out of Forest Elbow, make sure that, you know, you look for that crack in the inside corner just to straighten it up and drive it out. So for me, it was a, 
it was a big turning point, I think, just in that week. Uh, but then to have the result we did in the race, unfortunately for both Brad and Thomas Mazira, um, the uh, the following year in 95, then we, we paired up with Murph and, uh, you know, we stuck it on pole position the second year. Um, and then, you know, uh, I probably took the track probably a little bit for granted because 95, we had it on pole. I remember running down Conrod Strait and we had the engine issue and I remember I was chasing Jimmy. We were running second at the time. Jimmy Richards was in front of us and, you know, we were, he was pulling away and I remember going down the gears trying to keep the thing going and then, of course, it seized and we managed to roll it into the pit lane and, and our, our day was done. 96, again, Murph, you know, we we, uh, we had, like, 96 was a, was a complete... Amazing year. You know, to win the Shallow Touring Car Championship, then to Sandown, then to go on to Bathurst. But then 97, um, as I said, it probably I was a little bit cocky. I came back, um, again, partnered up with Murph, hit the wall, passing a car across the top of the mountain where I probably shouldn't have been, probably just a little bit overconfident. And, and I was chasing Scaife at the time. Um, you know, hit, put it into the wall, um, destroyed our race. And, uh, and I think that was at the time, at that moment... You go. You take a step back. Go. Oh, yeah, yeah. This place. You need a lot of respect for. You recounted about Bathurst with Brad Jones before. That was in the VP Commodore '96 epic year championship. The Bathurst win, as you say, that was in the VR mm. Commodore. Share a little bit about that car with us. What it was like to drive. How much of a step up or a change was it from the VP? Ah, uh, massive. I think Aeros. Uh, although we, we didn't have as much as we do now, but even just the transformation from one uh, model to the next was definitely a big improvement. The other thing that people you know, probably also need to appreciate and understand that back then we had tyre war. So, you know, we were racing against Dunlop and Yokohama and Bridgestone, who we were running, um, were passionate about being superior. So I remember at the end of 95, we did like 13 days testing. Uh, went to Eastern Creek, Malala, Phillip Island, Oran Park. Oh, everywhere and anywhere we could get a, get a car on the track, we tested. And it was 13 days. And I remember the test vividly at Eastern Creek, which is now Sydney Motorsport Park. We were testing Bridgestone tyres against the Dunlop tyre. So we Bridgestone had, had bought a whole heap of different compounds, structures, um, and literally, I was. I spent a day. I remember Brock and I were doing it. We spent a day just doing race runs, like thirty lap runs. Just, oh, really? and they had. They didn't tell me what tire it was. Just they bolted a set of tires on, and they said, "All right, go and go and do a thirty lap run." So you do a lap, see how consistent they were, see the tire wear. Bridgestone guys would take them away, put another set on. So we started '96 far more structured and prepared than what anyone thought. Because um, I remember we, our first race was at Eastern Creek. Um, short track, under lights, we man- we won it. Uh, I think Bowie was second. can't remember who was third. It might have been Gardner. And I remember going into the weekend, Gardner basically saying, yeah, cocky little driver, he won't even win a race, let alone a championship. And, you know, it was sort of – because at that point, no team had really put a lot of emphasis on young people or young drivers. So for me, it was a um, – uh, at the end of 95 is something what I needed to be comfortable going into 96 so for me I, and to be honest I was probably cocky enough to not even worry about who the other drivers were I just wanted to win races and you know we won we won at Eastern Creek we went on to win another one and then another one and then all of a sudden people are going oh okay this is something now different 
But we also knew, and as I brought up the tyre war, because we knew we go, we, when we go to tracks like a Malala track, the Dunlop was superior. Um, you went to Oran Park, the Bridgestone was going to be superior. You go to Sandown, it's pretty neutral. So you knew tracks that were going to be good for you and we knew tracks that were going to be a, a, you know, a challenge. So we just had to make, make the best of what we had. And, and I remember, you know, we actually had a spreadsheet and we were just, as the year was going on, we were, we were ticking off what we wanted to achieve. So, and it got to a point where, I think it was Lakeside, where, where Bridgestone said, all right, whatever, t- what, if, if we could make you the, the perfect tyre, what would it be? And I said, you know, um, you need a soft compound at the outer layers, obviously, for qualifying, but then as it wears through, you wanted the compounds to get harder for the temperature and, and to maintain consistency, and they built it. This is Greg Rust, and you're listening to Rusty's Garage. More with Craig Lowndes in a moment. In this series, I speak to some of the most passionate car lovers I know, like former Australian Top Gear host, engineer, and pure car nerd, Steve Pizzardi. So they shut the road down, and I was in a radical uh, SR3 race car, and it was raining and foggy and misty and all this sort of stuff, and I thought... How, how have I ended up here? I'm on the Isle of Man TT road in a race car, empty, no one around. And we were doing this filming and it sort of got me really annoyed because we were just doing these 50k an hour passes. And in the end I said, you know what, stuff this. Clicked it back a couple of gears and said, I'm out of here. I said, I'm never going to get a chance to do this ever again. I don't care if the producer cracks it, I'm going to go. So I got to drive for about 15 minutes without the producer, without cameraman. And you know how rare that is. Rusty, um, and I honest, honestly, it sounds silly, but I thought if I go over a cliff and die in a fiery wreck, I'd be happy with that. <laughs> it doesn't get any better. Listen to the full episode with Steve Bazzardi here on Rusty's Garage. Naturally aspirated versus super or turbocharged. A naturally aspirated engine takes in air to mix with fuel and create combustion on its own. Supercharged or turbocharged engines use some kind of compressor to force additional air into the engine. Much more fun. So at the height, the dizzy height of it all, Europe beckons a move back to open wheels. Why did you decide to, to do that? And was the dream Formula One, mate? Was that what you were thinking at the time? Uh, well, it was. And I think that um, I suppose the connection through HRT at the time with Tom, uh, he had the Arrows Formula One team uh, based in Europe. Or England, uh, so yeah, the, the dream was still to have an open wheel career, um, and we were hoping through the touring car side of it we could create that, um, which we did. To to be honest, I think that um, sat with Tom, and Tom was we were, <laughs> and it was a crazy time because we had we signed a management agreement with Tom, um, which was which the whole purpose and the idea of that was to go forward to Formula One. And I do remember that Barry Sheen at the time, we were at Phillip Island, we were about to sign the deal and I spoke to him and Barry said, don't do it. Wow. Don't do it. And I'm like, no, no, but I want to get to Formula One now. This is my dream. This is what I want to do. And and um, anyway, um, which later in life it become a bit of an issue. But uh, so he's, he's probably right. Should listen to the old Baz. <laughs> um, but it, no, it, it gave me an opportunity through Tom because I remember at the end of 96, uh, Tom uh, invited me over to Europe. We went there and tested in uh, Formula 3000. Actually, we tested a, a Formula 3 car. Mm-hmm. And because he, uh, Tom himself had a junior Formula 3 team. And it was very quickly at that point that they could see that I, I was 
overdriving the car because I was so used to more horsepower. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether that would have been a better option, don't know. But then we went and op- opted to do a test in a Formula 3000 team. So the first one was with um, Supernova. And it was at Snedderton. And again, um, the team could see that I had a background of touring cars already. The way my... my way you evolved. way I evolved and the way I was driving. So they wanted to do a second test. Uh, we did the first test day, reconvened back to headquarters. Uh, they wanted to do another test. They rang Tom, said, we, we're going to go down to Jerez and um, do another test. But unfortunately, on the way down, when they were in France... The transporter got caught up in a in a, some sort of convoy blockade and whatever they did down then. Um, so then that opportunity didn't w- wasn't going to be able to present itself as quickly as we needed it to. So then Tom said, "Well, look, we've got another team with RSM Marco that are they're, they're testing at um, at uh, Hungary, which was um, the, the Formula One track. Um, so we'll send you over there and do that." I said, "Okay, great." So I went over there. The test drive it was two of us at the time, Ricardo Zonta. And myself, we tested, uh, we spent the day there testing. I came back to base, back to England, sat with Tom. Tom said, no, what you feel? Which team? What do you like? And at that time, both teams were very much English influenced in people. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, look, it, it, you know, for me, it doesn't matter. Um, probably what I didn't appreciate at the time is where the teams were located. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should have taken that into more consideration, probably. But again, I was naive. I'd just come out of Australia. First time out of Australia in the sense of full time. I left it up to Tom. I came back to Australia at the end of 96. So it started in 95, uh, 97, sorry. There was a big hype and obviously the media about me going back to Europe, racing, doing whatever I could. Tom did a deal with RSM Marco. Now that team is based in Graz in Austria. So for me, again, hence why I probably should have taken more emphasis on where the team was based because I lived in Graz in Austria, so I ended up going over there, lived in Graz in Austria for 10 months, didn't really understand the language, had to try and learn um, German or Austrian, um, really struggled with the climate, um, everything, and really just got thrown in the deep end, to be honest. But what, what actually happened in a team relation is that literally all their team employees from the end of 96 left. So the start of 97, when I went back over there, it was a completely new team, like very, very much a Austrian team um, Matty Boniface who was quite frequently here in Australia in touring cars he actually came over to help engineer the car um, or actually run the car um, Paul who was from WA he was the truck driver he was, he was the only two English speaking people I had in the whole team so from what I what I tested with to what I went back to was, was absolutely a brand new team um, my teammate was Juan Pablo Montoya uh, and, and basically, that, that year was a massive learning curve. Massive. You drove RSM Marco, Helmet Marco, okay? So he's now the advisor to Red Bull owner Dietrich Martisic for their Formula One program for junior driver development. He's a hard task master, mate, a tough boss. Was he fair? What was he like to work with? How did you find that? Oh, he was hard. He was, he was very hard. Like, so the, the, the point of, at the start of the year, there was two cars, obviously Montoya and myself. We had one engineer who was Austrian. And he basically set both cars up the same. And I struggled for the first half of the year because coming from a touring car background, I had some bad traits. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that the car was getting set up didn't suit my style. So um, there was actually a gentleman that came from New Zealand uh, who I'd worked a little bit with when I did the Formula Holden in New Zealand at the end of 95, um, Alan McCall. And he'd worked with some great Jim Clarks and, and other people and, and ha- had a massive history. He actually 
um, he and his wife paid for their own way over um, and he started to engineer me in the second half of the year and we started to turn things around you know our best uh, best result was um, down at Enna uh, down in Sicily and uh, we had a fourth there we were running fourth at um, Helsinki a street track when the, when the drive shaft broke so really I was um, at the end of the year uh, we, I think we finished 17th out of 32 cars but that still wasn't enough momentum to go into the second year so unfortunately that, that was my only time in, in, a, in a single seater over there um, but yeah back to Dr Marco you know we go testing and he wanted to know from one lap why I wasn't faster than the previous lap and, and uh, he was always on our case about you know different things uh, squash was, was something I had to learn how to play um, because that was, that was you know, back then that was something that he got all their drivers and, and whoever else um, to play. And so Montoya and I used to play squash a lot. And, you know, he invited us to his house. I didn't have a car at the time. So, you know, either he'd pick me up, take me out there and then basically say, that, fine, get a cab home, um, you know, make your own way back. He was, you know, he was very, very straight up and down. Um so for me, it was it was it was a huge learning curve coming from a team like HRT at the time, who were very much a supportive um, and supported you through everything, to a team that was like black and white, yeah. either sink or swim. You mentioned Juan Montoya before. You said to me in a TV interview last year that he was, you know, young man, a bit arrogant back then, but. I think you guys have cleared the air since then, haven't you? You've spoken about it. Are you cool now? Yeah, yeah, we're all fine now. I think that's. Uh, oh, look, he, he was cocky. He was young. Um, he, you know, I found it frustrating because you know I, I was a qualified motor mechanic. I worked hard to get through to where I was. Um, his parents were architects um, in Colombia. Very like lovely people. Mm-hmm. Um, he was just really cocky and arrogant. Like he was just a complete different driver and a, te- and a teammate that I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned, again, I learned, as I said, that year was a very much a character building year for me on and off track. Um, you know, I learned a lot. Um, and, you know, for me, uh, at the end of the day, like, you know, I remember, you know, down in Sicily when we were racing around the track down there, you know, he had a flat tyre. Was, he, was, he was fourth, I was fifth. He had a flat tyre. I went to pass him. He tried to drive me into the fence because um, he didn't want me to beat him. Like He was just a real arrogant driver. So, you know, as I said, you, you learn different things along the way. And, you know, he, he was one of the drivers out of any of all the drivers I've ever been with mentally had not, had mentally sort of got to me. Mm-hmm. And I think from that, though, point, I, became, I came back to Australia and I became a much stronger mentally prepared driver than, I, than I'd ever been. The proof is that you reunite, you pine for home, you reunite with HRT, back in business, and the success the success story continues, mate. Two more championship wins, uh, Lowndes and Holden. It just seemed meant to be. But in the early 2000s, you make a move that would shock many to to forward a fresh challenge. Why? Um, because at the time, we were living in Queensland, the team were based in Melbourne, uh, we started going different directions, to be honest. I think that the team, the team directions where they were going were different sort of and, and the philosophy and, and, you know, I suppose um, a bit of that side of it was just, just different. Mm. Um, so we spent six months in 2000. During 2000, we spent six months trying to renegotiate uh, with the team. And, you know, I, I was keen and, and more than happy to stay with Holden. There was no doubt about that, but just... You know, the team itself wasn't where I wanted to be, and the philosophy and and um, and the way they were operating was definitely not where I was. And and it really, really was one of those moments where 
you knew that you were definitely on the outer. Again, you know, living in Queensland, I remember when Glenn Seaton had his big crash at Phillip Island in 2000. And I rang uh, my engineer at the time, uh, Matty Crawford, and I said, oh, you know, have you heard anything about Glenn? And he says, yeah, yeah, we're first to the scene. And I said, well, what do you mean you're first to the scene? He said, oh, well, we're down here testing, didn't you know? So they'd gone testing without even telling me and or inviting me. I was definitely on the outer at that point. So there was a bit of bit of bad blood um, at that point. And, you know, from both sides, it wasn't just from me or them. And uh, we got to a point where we like we, we couldn't we couldn't come to a resolution about where I wanted to be and what the team wanted to be, where the team wanted me to be. And I remember at the time as we we're going through that six month period that um, Jeff Polites from Ford rang up. He rang up and said, hi, it's Jeff from Ford. We understand and believe that you're going through some difficulties. Um, we're here if you want to talk or if you get to a point where you, where you want to change, we're here to talk. I can't remember exact words, but something like that and just left me alone. So like, like two months went, went by we got to a point where we couldn't make any any headway into in, into making a, a change. So I remember sitting um, in a hotel, in a conference room in in, um, in Melbourne, and Tom was there, and basically my lawyer was there. There was there was a couple other people there, and he Tom looked across the table at me and said, "All right, just tell me straight up now, you want to stay or go?" And it, he was just blunt as that, and I said, "I'm going." Wow. So that was the end of that. That was, um, that was the end of the, the HRT drive side of it. Getting back to the Barry Sheen time was then, then we had to resolve the management agreement because we still under contract to Tom as a manager. So we'd sort of resolved one hurdle, but then we jumped into another. I inadvertently, mate, broke an embargo on the news back then, which I deeply regretted. A hugely stressful time for you. How much did Brock help you through that? Because he'd walked a tough road before like this happened. Oh, yeah. I, I, I remember sitting up um, at the house when they had the house at uh, Doreen at the time with Bev and Peter and, and sat with them and I said, look, you know, this is what we're going through. They knew what was going on. They, mm. they weren't, weren't blind and the people in the industry knew what was going on. And uh, I sat with Peter and and. Um, and Bev, and they basically said, you're not going to lose anything. And I said, well, how do you sort of claim that? Because mm. at that point, we said that we're moving to Ford. Mm. And he said, well, you're not going to, you're going to have sort of 50% of the holding base that are going to hate you because you're defecting. You're still going to have 50% that still appreciate and understand and love for you for what you've done. Mm. Then you're on the other side, you're going to have 50% of the Ford people hate you because you're still a holding driver. But then you have the other 50% of Ford going, about time. <laughs> so you're going to have 100% of support anyway. Yeah. You're not going to lose. And it was actually right. It was it was 100% right. Like we had holding people that, that didn't like us because they felt like I, I betrayed them. Um, and then you got the other side of it, the Fords fans going, no, 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 you know, you're still a holding driver and we didn't want you anyway. And and at that time it was it was a real competition within Ford because Jeff Pilates wanted me to come across and then you had Ambrose, Marcus Ambrose that – was getting sort of groomed to come in as well. So there was a bit of a battle um, internally in Ford about who was going to be the, the, the not the, well, the shining light, really, between Marcus and myself. You handled it superbly, mate. You paved the way for a lot of drivers in, in many respects that would follow because it, it was a deeply divided game in, in brand loyalty terms and you, 
you obviously spent a lot of time figuring out how you would manage that with the fans. That was important, wasn't it? Oh, it was. And I think that um, fans have always been a massive influence for me and what I do and how I do it. And Brock was probably one of the biggest keys of understanding that side. Like in the early days, you know, you go back to, to Bathurst, like he, he'd drive into Bathurst, the circuit, and, you know, he'd look at the crowd, look at the, the grandstands, look at the mountain and go like, you know, how good is this? You know, the atmosphere, the energy, everything was all a positive outlook. And, and so for me, it was always about that side of it. Mm. Um, and I got told back then, like, you're never going to please everyone. But I didn't believe it. Like, I thought still then you still make everyone happy. Mm. Um, so for me, yeah, the fans have always been a, a, a massive part of who I am and what I've done. And, and you know, for me, it was a, a really important to try and continue that. Back into the cars. Memories of the first Ford supercar you drove, where and what was it like? Uh, AU, back at, uh, it was actually... Um, a Stone Brothers car that uh, the team had purchased. It was at Winton. And uh, it was just a different beast. Mm. It was just harder to drive because the Commodore had such a broader window of operation. The, the AU potentially had the same speed, potentially had the same lap time, but you had to be more precise. Mm. Um, so it, it wasn't that you couldn't do it with the Ford. It's just harder work to do it with the Ford. And, and I remember driving it around Winton thinking, oh, God, we've got a, we've got a lot of work to do around here. <laughs> Compared to what you'd had with HRT, which was your benchmark. Well, yeah, it was. And, and they were the benchmark and they still were the benchmark at the time. And, and as I said, the, the, the Commodore just had a wider wider parameter, a window of operation, and, and you could get away with a lot more. And, and there was a time frame there for, for a number of years that that was always going to be the case. Podium finishes at Bathurst with Glenn Seaton, the infamous plastic bag and the radiator. I mean, there, there, there were glimpses, mate, but, but early on it just didn't yield the, the results. And as you, you touched on before, it was during the, the emergence of the Stone Brothers Ford team as well. They were really starting to hit their straps, weren't they? Oh, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, Ford were, were really trying to get into, into motor racing in a big way. And, uh, you know, um, it really was one of those things that... Uh, Stone Brothers were kicking goals. You know, we started with the Gibson uh, outfit, but then it became a little bit turmoil because then the ownership of the team wasn't exactly in the and the way it was set up wasn't exactly the way it was presented to both Ford and ourselves. Um, and then you know, um, Forbes then became the owner. Well, we always was the owner of the team, and and um, and. It, then, we, of course, we got to understand that side of it. And then we, and then we had to change names from Gibson to Zero Zero. Uh, it was a bit of a turmoil in that sort of process. And, and then at the end of the second year, Jeff Pilates then rang me up and said, all right, you know, we're going to set up this new super team mm-hmm. um, for performance racing. We want you to head it up. Um, we're going to join forces with Glenn Seaton. Um, we're going to house it out at Broadmeadows. So basically, there was not an option to say no. Okay, you weren't um, tempted to go to Stone Brothers. Was there ever an opportunity for you to go to Stone Brothers? Um, not at that point. No, no. And I think that they were pretty happy with their lineup. You know, with Russell and and with Marcus. I think that uh, really for them, they'd, they'd yeah, they'd, they'd found goodness in both um, those two drivers. And so yeah, so Ford were very keen to set up this super team. With Ford Performance Racing, and uh, you know, and then that was when the process. The, first, the original part of it, when I moved across, we still worked out at Glenn Seaton's original workshop, and then we then moved into the Super Factory mm. at Broadmeadows, and um, and of course, uh, 
again, the, 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 not only the dynamics, but just the ingredients wasn't there. It was, and I remember sitting down at the end of the year, at the end of 04, because I joined Triple Eight in 05. And I sat down with the team and the principals and everything, and Glenn was there. We we're all there around the t- coffee table. And I said, all right, what is, and I was out of contract. And I said, well, what's the program look like? Like, what does 05 Beyond look like? And I can remember them sitting there saying, well, what you see now is what we've got. No, well, that's not good enough. Um, and, and I was frustrated because we, we'd come come from a team like a HRT. We were winning races, championships, and then, you know, we, yeah, we struggled through the Gibson 0-0 era. We moved to full performance racing. Uh, it was obviously aligned with the road car side of it. Uh, we won at Phillip Island by mistake in a sense. You know, we pitted right. It absolutely teamed down rain. We were leading the leading the, the the cars when it got red flagged. Hence, we inherited the win. We hadn't won it on merit or, or speed. Team, I think, got a little bit arrogant about now. This is the start of goodness, um, and it was like no. Um, and then, of course, at the end of ninety, uh, sorry, oh four, um, I had to ring Ford up and say I, I wanted to change again. And at that time, Glenn was moving to to Dick Johnson. I said I want to move to this team called Triple Eight. And they weren't keen on it, but they backed it. And, and of course, we'd raced against Roland uh, with Paul, Paul Radishish and Max Wilson, who I'd raced against Max Wilson in 3,000 a wow. day. So we'd crossed paths again, a little young Brazilian. Um, and watching the Triple Eight outfit have mechanical issues for the first two years of their operation and I was moving and I wanted to move to it so that the Ford were a little bit apprehensive going well we've sort of noticed this last two years and it's not what we expect you to be but what they didn't see and what you know I went through the workshop with Roland he showed me and laid out the plans and what was going to happen um, so I saw the the ingredients of what I'd almost saw back in HRT days and it was like yeah I, he's got the ability to create some good things. You're talking about Roland Dane, Triple Eight team owner. I mean, hardcore racer, but seriously good businessman, mate. So the ingredients were obviously in place, and and it proved to be a masterstroke. You've been with him for over ten years now, and it's yielded some incredible results. Oh, absolutely, and I think that uh, again we've gone from strength to strength, and it's that emotion. And I've got it this year, even with winning at Tasmania, like with Auto Barn Lounge Racing, like. We went into the team. So the end of 04, we were living in Queensland. We re- relocated, obviously, different teams. We basically started afresh in 05. And um, Steve Allery was my teammate. Uh, and I'd raced against Steve Allery in go-kart. So, again, we crossed paths many years later. And and it wasn't until the victory at Eastern Creek City Motorsport Park against Marcus Ambrose, we actually, I think... We ended up equal on points, but we won the last race, so we won the we won the weekend, and it was that turning point of the belief and the and the visual relief, but belief also of the faces within the team that they went from hoping and wishing to now understanding we can and we will win races. And it was that turning point that really turned 05 around. And then to go into it, we had a, such a strong car at Bathurst. Now, we, we'd won Sandown um, with Ivan Muller. We'd then moved on to Bathurst. We had such a strong car. We were leading. We pulled away from Marcus. I had clipped the wall, broke the Watts link. We repaired that, got back out. 
And then I hit the tire in into the window, which for me was just a massive blow because that was probably out of all the Bathurst, that was the one Bathurst that got away. That that vision you can find on YouTube, it's frightening. Fast forward another uh, another twelve months. Sadly, your great mentor Peter Brock passes away in a in a tarmac rally crash in in WA. Where were you when you first learned about that, and how did it make you? What was your reaction? Um, I just come back from a function. I remember being. Uh, I just got back home, where I was living at the time. Uh, I remember the. F- I laid down because I was I was buggered. I, can't, I had a really early start, and I remember laying down and the phone just ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing. I'm like, holy, what's what's going on? Um, and then at the time, I got told that potentially the rumor is that Brock has been in call, uh, been fatally injured in a car, a rally crash, a tarmac rally crash. So for me, it was like, no, nah, that's not, that can't be right. So over the next sort of hour or so, you turn the news on. There was more speculation. Um, there was then a, a, a vision of the car wrapped around the tree, um, and then all of a sudden there was uh, three choppers land on the property, and uh, we went back. Uh, to Channel 9 from memory to do a live, um, you know, basically pick up. Um, I remember there was um, Bridie, uh, they got Bright um, and a few other athletes and, and people that he touched and, uh, you know, we had an in- and it got confirmed and, yeah, had an interview about it. I just, I mean, even to this day, it's still hard to comprehend just weeks later, you go to race at Bathurst, and it turns out ultimately to be a, a full roller coaster, a fairy tale result. But you mentioned at the beginning of our, our chat here, you got to drive the seventy-two Holden Tirana that morning in a special parade in in his honour. Uh, could you soak up what it was like to drive that car? Was it just an emotional blur? What, what was it like? Oh, no, we, we went into that whole week at Bathurst knowing why we were there, and. We, as a team, and I say we as a team, because Brock used to get up me all the time. It's like, we, you always say we. Like, is it you and who? Like, who else is driving this car? And it's just me. I just always say we. Me and the team. Um, we, as a team, went into that week just with the, the focus on winning the race. Knew the enormity of what and why we were there. So we tried to, to put it out of our brain as much as we could for the first couple of days. And it, it was. It was a media frenzy. Like everyone was asking, you know, and, and Holden had done that tribute car and had it out the back and we all signed it. Um, then there was the opportunity to drive the Tirana. And I remember making a call to Ford saying, look, because uh, we were Ford then, uh, ringing them up and asking, look, I've got this opportunity to drive Brock 72 Bathurst winning Tirana on the parade lap. Um, I'd like your wishes to be able to do it. And in the back of my brain, to be honest, I was going to do it anyway. Okay. Um, whatever, if Ford had said no, I would have said thank you, but bad luck. Okay. But they said, no, absolutely, go for your life. So Ford gave me the wishes, which was really strange at that time, or any time for a Great one, respect. Well, yeah, great. And, and that was the thing. It was the respect of what he was as a person, not what he drove or what he did. It was him as a person. And... So for me, yeah, to drive, and I remember and we went out to the back of the dummy grid and I met the owner and he told me and we looked, we walked around the car and looked at the car and he said, look, please don't let it idle too long. It's going to foul at the plugs and then it's not going to run right and it's going to spit and fart and pop and bang. And so I'm like, oh, Christ, okay. There's nothing like our cars, but anyway. So I get in the car and, and um, 
and then to drive it. And, and the ergonomics is anyone's ever not driven a XU1, please go and sit in one. Mm. The ergonomics, the pedal box is off to the right, the steering wheel is off to the left, nothing's in line um, because of the tunnel. The t- the, the, obviously, everything is just the way it built it back then. So sitting cockeyed, driving it like that, gearbox was all crunchy, trying to become mechanical, mechanically sympathetic for what they were and what they had back then. As we're doing the lap, I remember the crowd were all standing. Um, I was the second car behind James Brock. And then to do the lap, we'll finish the lap, have the cars parked on pit straight, um, and then to have the minute of silence. And and I, and I say it, it was a deathly silence because it... Mm, Normally, if you have a minute of silence, the wind's blowing, the birds are chirping, there might be a baby cry. There's something out there. There was not a sound for that that minute, and that for me was 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 really amazing. Like I always remember. It. And then Bev come up and gave me a hug when we're still standing beside the Tirana, uh, and she whispered in my ear and said, "You know, Peter, be proud." And um, that's when we walked back to the to the um, the garage. And I was in tears. I think most people were. Brock was such a big part of my upbringing in that time. And I remember walking into the garage, Roland said, I can see you're upset. We can put Jamie in the car to start. I went, no. I wanted to have respect and show and drive this, start of this race. And we went into the race and we weren't the fastest car. We were far from it. You know, Scaife um, and Todd Kelly, the combination, they had it on pole. They were the fastest car. Then there was... Uh, Bright in the Falcon I can't remember who he was driving with at the time he was the next favourite there was others in front of us in speed world that we didn't have Brock fries the clutch on the start line Jack Perkins finishes him off as he goes over the crest and crashes the car Bright he goes out of the race with a mechanical issue all of a sudden things start opening up for us and we went through our rotations Jamie and I and Jamie and I and Jamie and I and I'm back in the car at the end and to be honest, having that battle with Rick at the end of the day was exactly what I needed to stay focused. And we were faster across the top of the mountain. We could always pull a gap on 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 Rick. So I knew every time he came out of Forest Elbow, if we didn't have two car links on him going down Conrad Strait, he'd, he'd have a he have a go at us. So that went on for I think twelve laps, a number of laps, till the end, till the last one. And I remember turning the corner, the last corner and Murray's Corner and basically I could have rolled across the line um, and we'd race sort of in cloud most of the day and, and the sun was bear, bearing down on, on pit straight uh, and I'm not superstitious but, you know, the gap, I think from memory, was 0.05 to Rick, the sun came out, everything just lined. Am I right in saying, I think I saw it at Tail and Bend recently that Roland Dane has kept that car, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, chassis 10. Um, it's still in the better electrical colours. Uh, it's the only car that Roland has kept in in, in the team. Um, I'm pushing him to, to uh, and hopefully he hears this, I'm pushing him to go to Goodwood. I'd love to drive that car. Fantastic. Um, I'd love to drive that car again and, and hopefully, you know, I hope he doesn't sell it, but, you know, if he does go to sell it, I hope that whoever buys it, um, I'd love to drive that car again. Um, it has very fond memories. It's, you know, it, it, as I said, it, it for Roland, he, it was Roland's first victory at Bathurst, which for him, under the circumstances while we were there, he has very strong connections with that car uh, and he made no qualms about when he came to Australia, why he was in Australia, he wanted to win Bathurst and that was the first year. So 
Your teammate, Jamie Wincup, has kept a car too, a car that's known as Kate. He calls it Kate. Have you got an ambition to own a supercar or you don't want to do that? Um, not really, to be honest. Um, you know, I've been lucky enough that, you know, I've got my first road car, I've got my first race car. Um, for me, and I've said this to Jamie, like to own a race car like that, it still needs to be run and operate operated. Um, he doesn't sort of see this... So he doesn't really see it that way. He just sees Kate as, you know, yes, Kate's the most winning supercar in history. It's won a Bathurst. He's probably spent the national debt on it to get it to, <laughs> to get it because it actually had got, it, it got, it changed paint schemes when it was owned by the team. So he had um, a gentleman that was his number one at the time, uh, Bales, to, and, he, and he sort of works within the team every now and then. So he spent two years restoring this Kate. <laughs> Um, to every nut and bolt, um, Graham um, Bailey is is one of the most un- fanatical, meticulous, meticulous, yeah. fanatical. <laughs> so he spent two years restoring this car, and uh, yeah, so Jamie's got this car, Kate. I believe it's sitting over at Tail and Bend with uh, chassis ten, and uh, you know, as I said to Jamie, you need to run it and get it working. Um, and that's probably why I won't buy a car. We actually did talk, you now say we, Lara and I did talk about buying the last ever full-time supercar, which is what we obviously currently running in. Um, but now I've got no ambition, not unless Ron wants to give it to me <laughs> as a present. Stellar career, mate. 650 plus starts, three titles, six Bathursts, and there's every chance that, that that tally will will grow. But you have decided to step down from full-time driving. How hard to make that decision and why? <sighs> Why? It's the right time. Um, and Roland and I have had this conversation over the last four years, uh, on and off. Um, obviously, he knows that I'm not getting any younger. He also knows that as long as I maintain my fitness and everything else, he would continue to run a car. He also said he'd never run three cars. Um, and when we found out that, that you know, he signed Shane. Well, obviously, that was a big turning point for me. But then he also decided to run a third car, which was um, hopefully something that I... I had, can, I'm just trying to think of a way to describe it. Pull out his uh, uh, heartstrings mm-hmm. and got him to open up a heart a little bit. Because um, I know he's got a heart. It's just the steel cage that goes around it. You've got to break through. Um, so you've got to get that. He did run a third car. We've had a great career with him. Um as I said, we've had this conversation on and off for the last four sort of four years, and you know, at the end of last or during last year, at the end of last year, everyone was yelling at me to retire. You know, I, performance qualifying was terrible. You know, you're not doing what you should be doing. You're not winning. Like I went through the whole year without winning a race. Um, so you have that in the back of your brain, and you go, hmm, "Look, what do you physically think you can get or do out of?" And you say, well, "Maybe you can do two more years," and that was the end of last year. And the big thing is, you know, again, I sat down with Lara and and her background in the sense of the change management and everything else. So, like, you know, if you have another year like last year or this year, which it was the end of last year, you basically sealing the deal. So we also looked at how we're going to change that up. I sat with Irish or John McGregor, my engineer. He's evolving. Like, he's still a rookie as, a, as an engineer in our um, fraternity. Um but he thinks outside the square. What he what he lacks in experience, he gets with youth and, and exuberance. Like he just wants to win. Mm. Um, so we sat down over Christmas. We went through a lot of different scenarios, how to change, how to operate, how we can make a change. And of course, then having that win at Tasmania, 
Um, we accomplished so much in that 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 weekend alone, and and it gets back to that factor of seeing the belief within a team. So the Saturday's race, being on the podium, first time for podium for us, and the team were just elated, like they were just running around. It's, it's like they won the lotto, and then for Sunday to back it up with the pole position, then to back it up with a win, like for them it was their Christmas. Um, and again, the, the feeling internally in me, it was like so good to be able to give something back. Um, and then we sort of sat down with Roland again and, and you sort of go through that process like, yeah, we've got a contract for next year. And you go, we think this is the right time. You know, we've been in the high levels of what this sport requires for over t- two decades. And we've, we're on a high, we're winning races, on podiums. You know, we always said we wanted to go out on a high. We didn't want to make up the numbers. We didn't want to sort of migrate or fall back into the... 20th, 15th realm of finish results, which we had last year. And that was something that was probably a big trigger. Um, so, yeah, I said to Roland, we think this is the right time. He said, all right, yeah, I think, yep. He backed the deal. He also then turned around and said, look, if you want to go and drive for another team, I'll tear up the contract now and, and go and find another drive. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, no, I'll stop you there now. I don't want to do that because, A, there's very few teams in pit lane that, that I believe have the facility and, and the infrastructure of what Triple Eight has. So if I can't do it here, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. And, you know, the, there is teams like Erebus that are showing good forms. Um, there's great teams like Penske um, that are, you know, and, and their drivers are signed, sealed and delivered. So unless they want to run through the car, never going to happen. So then you look at what else is out there. And, and you know, for me, it's the right time. I've had a great stellar innings with Roland. There is a reason why I've stayed with Triple Eight for such a long time because I believe in what they do. Um, yes, he he is a hard task mask, but he can be fair. Um, so I think at the end of the year, I'll, I'll be um, you know be happy. And I think since I made the announcement since Townsville, that I don't wake up at any point at any morning thinking I've made the wrong choice. I think no. that and I think that uh, that's a good telling fact. Absolutely. So you took to socials as well, mate, to shut down myths, theories, anything else about, you know, were you pushed, were you, you know, this is clearly your call. It was, and I think that uh, people probably think that because we're having a, such a stellar year that it, it wasn't my choice. But then people got to remember what last year was all about. Um, and as I said, like, people were yelling for me to retire last year but then this year they're going, oh, but you're performing now, so you should be okay. But then you go, all right, well, if I go 12 months down the track next year and I have another poor performance year, they're going to go, well, you should have retired last year mm-hmm. or this year. <laughs> you just can't win. Like for me, it really and, – and, and now made the decision. As I said, I don't regret it. And I really look at all the athletes and, and, and people that have gone through that in their brain. And I, always, I remember being in Scaife's retirement, you know, when he announced it and he was really emotional about it and like – I can now look back and honestly say that that you you're the only one that can make that decision. So you're not going to end up at Jamie's Car Wash Cafe as a barista. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Let's, let's, let's get rid of that theory. Um, you're going to be doing the Enduros, which yeah. is terrific, and you'll be around the sport, which is the main thing. You love it too much, don't you? Well, it is. It's been, like, I'm 44. It's, it's, as I said, over two decades I've been driving at this level, so it's been over half of my year of living as a person I've been involved in this sport. So for me, I, yeah, I've still got a lot to give back. I think that there's one element, and I said and I said it, I think, a, a quote with, to go over. It's a chapter of my book. It's not the book. Mm. So I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to hang my helmet up, boots and gloves for the last time. It's just I'm going to stop driving full-time in supercars, allow, you know, 
the team to move on. Whether they run two, three, four, as Roland says, I actually don't know. As I said, you can get any information out of Roland, you're doing such a good job. Um, and, of course, for me to be still part of the team, Roland still, still wants me to have a role within the team, which is fantastic. It's, it, for me to be able to now look at the business side and the corporate side of the other side of the business, um, still do the, uh, do the co-driving long distance, and, again, whether that's Jamie or Shane, a lot of people are saying I should pair up with, with, um, with Jamie because of the history we have, and I'd love to do that. But, again, it's not my call. Whether I get Shane and Jamie to do rocks, scissors, papers, I don't know, but <laughs> see what happens. Um, either one of them, I've driven their cars on any given time and I've drive both their cars very well. So that side of it I'm lo- really looking forward to. But along that, and as I said a long time ago, if you're going to be a co-driver, um, and Richo, for me, this year, re- dead keen on trying to make a good men's and, and a closure to the chapter for me, but as Richo does and many others, you've got to keep driving something else. So it's not the end of driving. Um, you know, I've just been watching and uh, in awe of the Spa 24 Hour, and um, you know that is I've done that. I'd love to do that. Love to do Le Mans. Love to do other things. And now, hopefully, gives me an opportunity and a chance to be able to open up those doors that haven't been able to do because of the supercar calendar always crosses over or has the same weekend earmarked, and that's really what what it is. So for me, and yeah, I'll be around racetracks just in a different role. One of the things I guess you might like to explore is time for some escapes. And you've done that with Daryl Beatty. You went, was it in the Simpson Desert? You went riding a motorcycle. Is that right? Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, it's been amazing that um, when you race drivers and you're racing, you're just competitors and you've and you, and you got rivals. So to do the ride, DV rang me up and, and we're both Honda ambassadors and he said, look, you've got to come for this ride. And I said, yeah, 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 look, I'd love to. If time permits. Lara said, all right, bugger this. So she actually got in contact with DB and said, you guys got to get this happening. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it happened. And, uh, and it was good because it was, it was heading to a race that I've always admired, which was the Fink. Um, it was the 40th anniversary. It all, stars all aligned. I flew into Birdsville. He'd then at already that point had done the trip from Alice to Birdsville across the Simpson going west to east. Then we were going to do the return track east to west, into Alice, watch the Fink and then come home. But then bugger me, as I said, we got rivals when you're on track. Larry Perkins turns up. He comes part of the thing. you got Jack Perkins <laughs> riding on the bike. So Jack's on the bike. Larry's in his Unimog. And, uh, and, and it's really funny. It's great to catch up with people like that outside of the sport. And, you know, to catch up with them around a campfire, beer in the hand, basically... You know, Larry telling some great stories. And I, and I said to him at the time, I said, Larry, I used to hate you, you know, mate, I, you know. I remember, remember you hit me all the time. We went to the stewards and you made this big crap about how your back was so sore because I hit you and I got penalised for it. And he goes, yeah, that's right, cock, I remember that, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, Jesus. So anyway, so the time that you spend just away, a, away from the sport, and I, I loved it because you, we oh, not even 30 seconds out of Birdsville, no mobile service until we got to Alice Springs. So that was about five days in the, in the Simpson. Riding across, I, I definitely want to do more riding. Um, I ride an Africa Twin on, on the roads. I know that Daryl's now just opened up an Africa Twin uh, trials. So uh, whether it's on that or doing something of like that, but um, yeah, I'd love to do more of that side of it. I love the Outback. I love going to different places. And through motor racing, um, we've been able to do that. Like I've driven from Melbourne to Darwin, Darwin to Perth, driven all around Australia because of the sport that's allowed me to do it. And um, so to take a step back, do another DB ride. He keeps cracking on about the, uh, the Cape ride never been up to the Cape York so maybe that's the next one on the list he does a great job doesn't he and you get to see some remote incredible countryside right 
favourite race car? Is it that 06 Falcon? Well, you say 06, but I almost say the 96. Um, because we had a clean sweep, we won the championship, San Ann Bathurst with, with a Kiwi friend. Um, so it's either the 96 car, uh, which I've actually spoken to the owners, which is um, the Ecclestons. Mm-hmm. Um, they have ownership of the car. They've completely restored the car. Um, and I am going to, at the time when we're down in Melbourne, to go out and have a look at the car. And uh, that would be another car that I'd love to to be able to put my backside in and start the key and, and drive it around just to, for old memory. So... The, the 96 or the 06 would definitely be the two car, my favourite cars. Any future resto projects or have you ticked the box there? No, no, actually, I, I, we, um, and I say we again, Lara and I, have um, uh, we want to build a kit car. So um, once I get some spare, t- actually, there's two things I've got to do. I've got to get some room in the shed <laughs> and then I've got some spare time and then uh, we'd love to, love to do a kit car. And whether, whether that, I, one of my favourite all-time road cars was the AC Cobra. So whether it's something like that or something else, um, don't know. But uh, in the next hopefully five years, we'll, uh, we'll we'll put pen to paper and nut down what we want to do. Does that make the Cobra the grail car? If if Craig Lowndes had unlimited budget and could go out and get something today, what is the thing you would have to have? <sighs> See, I'm, a, I'm just a lover of cars. So AC Cobra is definitely one of the lists. Um, Oh, I've always been a big fan of the Nissan GDR, but the old 33, 32, 33, like when Scaife and, yeah. and Jimmy were running. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a, that's an, another cl- – I love older cars. Um, I also love uh, Eleanor, um, the oh, old Mustang. Beautiful. Um, so, yeah, I, anything to do with cars I'm just a big fan of, and, and uh, it's not just because they seem to be Ford cars, but it's just I love old cars. Driving habits that make Craig Lowndes mad. Are you a calm oh. guy on the road? What are you oh. uh, people sitting in the right-hand lane doing un- under the speed limit. That drives me absolute nuts. And the other thing is not indicating. So um, big thing for me is, is indication. Like, you know, on the roads, um, hate, hate people that don't indicate because you just don't know where they're going. What do you listen to when you drive? Ooh, everything. Um the one thing that we do, we do it. We do a Bathurst road trip every year, and I'm going to be doing. We're still going to be doing it while I'm a co-driver. Um, is that we always put ACDC on as we go over the Blue Mountains, and we drive into Bathurst. ACD is always on the music. Awesome. Any particular songs? Back in Black. Back in Black. Back, Back in Black's the main one. Yeah, but uh, Thunderstruck. Um, all those good old songs that. Uh, and you ask Lara, that'll be always on the playlist as we're driving into into Bathurst. The result, the race result in an incredible career, which is not done yet. That you're most proud of? Oh, 06 Bathurst. Winning it for Brock was the most emotional race that I've ever done of my whole career. Um, and I can honestly say that I probably will never be in that situation again. So that that's you know that for me was and to stand on top of the podium at the end of the day and have your name yelled out by everyone. We were Ford, but everyone was there to have the respect. Rusty's Garage is recorded for Podcast One. Written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. And our satnav voice is Alana Burns. If there's someone you want me to talk to on Rusty's Garage, get in touch on the show page at podcastone.com.au. Listen to all the episodes of Rusty's Garage at podcastone.com.au via the Podcast One app or find us on iTunes. I'm Greg Rust. Enjoy the drive, but drive safely.